Father, thank you for um, Paul's letter to the Galatians, where your gospel is clarified. And uh, Lord, I pray we would be established firmly in the gospel. Uh, So Lord, use our time today and in weeks ahead uh, to make us strong in the gospel so we can uh, be confident of our salvation, so we can sniff out Uh, other gospels that claim to be true but are not true. Um, And Lord, that's what this this epistle is all about, Um, spotting false gospels and embracing the true one. Uh, So Holy Spirit, use this time for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so do you know what an ad hominem argument is? It's an argument that when you're not doing well winning the argument on the facts, you resort to attacking the person, right? Politicians do this all the time. In fact, uh, I read about a politician in Florida. Now, how true this is or not, I don't know. But he was not doing well in his debates So he resorted to ad hominem, attacking his opponent's character, attacking his opponent's life. And he started to spread the rumor. Uh, He said, my opponent, Claude Pepper, his sister is a well-known thespian, and his brother is a practicing homo sapien. Well, that was too much for people to take, and they, they voted, voted him out, and they put the new guy in. Well, a practicing thespian, she, or, or a, a well-known thespian, she was an actress, and the brother was a practicing homo sapien, a member of the human race, okay? But um, that's, that's uh, ad hominem. When you can't win the argument, you go after the character. Now, what's going on here? in Galatians is this. Paul, in fact, let me put up a map here. Paul becomes an apostle, and we read about his first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13. He and Barnabas get on a ship, and they sail to the island of Cyprus. They preach the gospel there. They sail to the coast here, and they preach and plant churches all in this region called Galatia. And then they get back on a boat and they sail back to Antioch where they they left from. And Paul has planted a number of churches. Now, um, what happens is after Paul plants these churches, some Jewish Christians follow Paul's path and they infiltrate all these churches and they say Paul's gospel is wrong. He was teaching that you're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. That's too easy. You, especially you Gentiles, you dirty Gentiles, don't think you're going to get into heaven that easy. You need, in addition to believing in Jesus, to be saved, to be justified before God, you need to follow some Jewish rules. You need to be circumcised, And you need to keep the Jewish diet. No more pork sandwiches, no more ham, no more bacon, no more shrimp, okay? 
um, you need to keep the Jewish diet and be circumcised. In other words, that Paul, he's got a false gospel. Now, they couldn't really win their argument based on the facts, so they resorted to ad hominem, attacking Paul's character. Now, when you look at chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2, and you read Paul kind of giving the history of, of, uh, of his early years, what you piece together is how they were attacking him. He doesn't come right out and say, hey, here's how they're accusing me, and here's my refutation. But by reading his kind of biography that he gives in chapter 1 and 2, you can see what they were saying about him. They were saying he is preaching a secondhand gospel, and he's a secondhand apostle. In other words, he didn't get his, his, his gospel from, uh, from Jesus like the original 12 did. I mean, they walked around with Jesus for three years. They got the, the gospel directly from Jesus. He got his, he learned it from somebody, and he's got it all messed up. And he's a second-hand apostle. He's not one of the original 12. If he's an apostle at all... He's a second-hand, a second-generation apostle. So that's what Paul has to refute. Now, it's interesting because what he has to do is distance himself from the other apostles, showing that his apostleship is not dependent on them. His gospel is not learned from them. He got it directly from Jesus. Yet, he also has to not distance himself so much that they think he's off on his own. He has to show that he is in unity with the apostles. So, that's his task. Now, here's how he does it. Okay, so there, there's the accusation. He's a second-hand apostle with a second-hand gospel. Can you guys even see that? Okay. Um, his first argument is this. My gospel was revealed directly from Jesus. I didn't learn it from man. Okay? So, Galatians 1, verse 11. He says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. I didn't get my gospel from the other guys in Jerusalem. I got it directly from Jesus. You remember his story. Before he was the Apostle Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus, a proud Pharisee. He hated Christians. In fact, he was behind the stoning of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. Right? He's the guy in charge. Um, he is out to arrest Christians, put them in prison, and persecute them. So, in Acts chapter 9, we read that this hateful uh, a Pharisee is on the road to Damascus in Syria to arrest Christians. Uh, when we went to Israel 
if you go up on the Golan Heights, which are mountains up in the north, there's a little coffee shop that you can sit at. And you can look down and you see a road. And it goes to Damascus. It's the road that the Apostle Paul was, was probably riding a horse on to Damascus to arrest Christians. And what happens? It says, now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, and and by the way, I want you to notice that when you persecute a Christian, you are persecuting Jesus. Those Christians over in Iraq who are being persecuted right now, in essence, Jesus is saying, why are you persecuting me? He is so identified with his church that he feels the pain. Okay? So why are you persecuting me? And he said, and Paul said, or Saul said, who are you, Lord? In essence, I don't know who you are, but whoever you are, you're the Lord. And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Paul switched teams right there. He used to hate Christ and hate Christians. Now he is a preacher of Christ. And that's where he got his gospel. Jesus himself gave it directly to Paul. Now, um, this was not a dream. It wasn't a vision. It wasn't an angel. It was the resurrected Christ appearing personally to Paul. One of the uh, requirements to be an apostle is you had to witness the resurrected Christ. Paul says, I'm an apostle. I witnessed the resurrected Christ. But Notice, you know, today you hear people saying, oh, yeah, I'm an apostle. Oh, have you witnessed the resurrected Christ? Oh, yeah, we talk all the time. We stroll through the garden, and Jesus is my buddy. Once John MacArthur was talking about uh, a, a, a pastor that he knew that claimed that Jesus would appear next to him in the morning when he was shaving. And if you know John MacArthur, MacArthur goes, so... The Jesus, the resurrected, glorified Jesus, stands next to you when you're shaving in the morning. The guy goes, yeah. He says, I have one question for you. Do you keep shaving? Because if you do, it's not the Jesus that we read about here. The glory is so powerful, Paul is blinded and he falls off his horse. But Paul's point is this. I don't have a second-hand gospel that I've messed up, mixed up. I got my gospel directly from Jesus. All right, so that's point, point number one. I don't have a second-hand gospel. I have a first-hand gospel from the risen Jesus himself. Now, the second point he wants to refute is uh, they're accusing him of being a second-hand Apostle. He's not one of the original uh, 12 guys. So what he has to talk about here is the fact that his calling as an apostle 
came before he was born. He was predestined to be an apostle. This is not a man-made thing where he himself declared himself to be an apostle. There's a movie called The Apostle with Robert Duvall where he declares himself to be an apostle, baptizes himself in a swamp, starts a church. He's, he, he, no, Paul's going to argue that his calling is not his own, and it didn't even come from the other apostles. It came directly from Jesus himself. But he has to also show that the other apostles don't disagree with this calling. They're going to show that this calling goes hand in hand. So first of all, what he has to do here is distance himself from the other 12. So here's what it says. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when, now here it comes, but when he, God, who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, okay, this, is, this has got um, remnants of Jeremiah in it. Remember Jeremiah chapter 1? God, before he's born, sets Jeremiah apart to be a prophet to the nations. Here, Paul says, you know what? I used to hate Christians, but before I was even born, God set me apart to be an apostle to the Gentiles. By the way, those of you who struggle with predestination, what do you do with that? And you go, well, he was special. By the way, who writes about predestination and teaches us about predestination? Paul. His calling as, as an apostle, it's not something that developed within time. This was all planned before he was born. Okay, so, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Now look at this. I did not immediately consult with anyone. You would think he would say, wow, uh, I, got, I got Jesus appearing to me. I'm an, I better go get my my certificate of apostleship from the other guys in Jerusalem. No. He didn't go to Jerusalem. I didn't consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. He's creating separation between his conversion and when he goes to see the apostles. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit with Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. We'll come back to James in a minute. In what I am writing to you before God, I, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown in, the per, in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Then in the next chapter, he says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. Now, whether that's 14 years after the first three years, or the 14 years includes the first three years, 
people debate. I don't care. It doesn't really matter whether it was 14 years or 17 years. His point is, Jesus appeared to me, and before I really went to Jerusalem to to really lay out my gospel before uh, the other apostles, 14 years had passed. In other words, I was planting churches, I was preaching the gospel long before I even got to know the other apostles. Now, there was a two-week period where I did go to, to, to meet with Peter, okay? But that was, that was a minor thing. What's he doing here? He's saying, my apostleship comes directly from Jesus, not from the other guys. Now, what do we learn here? Well, I, th- I think you've got to be careful, or I should say, how do you apply this today? You've got to be careful when you take something unique to an apostle and try and apply it to us today, because there's, there's just a, a very uniqueness about apostleship that doesn't transfer today. Um, but I do think there is one thing we can learn. When a person is called into ministry... Do they need to be confirmed by others? Or should they just be out doing their own thing? Well, we are given clear direction in 1 Timothy about elders in the church. It says this, 1 Timothy 3, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder or pastor, okay? He desires a noble task. What that tells you is that when a man is called to be a pastor or an elder, there is an internal calling from God. There's a desire I believe God is calling me into the ministry to be an elder, to be, in a, uh, uh, to, to be a pastor. Okay, But then, now notice it doesn't say, if anyone uh, aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task, go out and get him. Go get him. He then goes on and gives a bunch of qualifications that the rest of the church is to recognize in the guy. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. So there's about 15 things. So here's how it works. God calls a man internally, just like the Apostle Paul was, but then he is to be affirmed or confirmed by the rest of the body. There's an internal calling that is then confirmed by external objective criteria. Okay? But, but, when it comes time to examining whether this person should be an elder or a pastor, here's what the church is doing. They are are looking to see if he has been internally called. In other words, the elder process in a church doesn't make the person an elder. It confirms that God has called the person to be an elder. 
In other words, there does need to be an internal conviction that, yes, God has called me. Not an arrogance. Not a, hey, I don't care what anybody thinks. He should be willing to submit himself to the church for examination. But there should also be a confidence that, yeah, God is working in me, calling me to do ministry. So I guess here's the application. You know, in a church like this or any any church, there are official ministry positions and titles and so forth. But what we should be looking for in you is that God's already working in you. Look, some of the things that you're to do, you're to be hospitable. You're to be able to teach. The first time the guy teaches shouldn't be when he's an elder. There's plenty of teaching opportunities. You know, when I got saved, I was was 19 years old, was out at Northern Illinois University. I can show you the building that I heard the gospel in. It was in an auditorium. I could there's probably a big black X on that seat saying, don't sit here. Brian Smith sat here. Okay. Um, so I'm 19 years old. I hear the gospel. I started attending some Bible studies. There was Campus Crusade and InterVarsity. And, and here's what happens. After a while, you go to the Bible study and you start asking questions. And pretty soon they go, this guy's really thinking it through. And then they say, hey, why don't you teach next time? So you prepare your first Bible study. And it actually, you're not too heretical. And then you, pretty soon you're, you know, you're, you're teaching the gospel. And, and you're te- leading others. And then other people recognize, well, why don't you lead this? And then uh, after a while, there's a friend and I who we, we put on these evangelistic outreaches for the whole campus. There were, uh, some of you may remember this. There were these really, really bad end-of-the-world uh, end movies, Thief in the Night and The Mark of the Beast, and we actually had to rent the film. They would send the films in the mail, and you had to get a big projector. And um, we actually, remember a few years ago in Cole Hall out in NIU, there was those shootings? We rented Cole Hall, and advertised in the paper and on flyers that we're going to show these movies about end times. And then my friend got up one day at the end of one movie and he gave his testimony and I got up at the end of another movie and I gave my testimony and shared the gospel. Totally on our own. Nobody told us how to do it. We weren't really accountable to anybody. But we had to share the gospel. Now, when it comes to preaching and teaching and being in the church, there's a time to be examined. But one of the things that the church should ask is, what are you already doing teaching-wise? What are you already doing evangelism-wise? Who have you led to the Lord? In other words, if you're saying, hey, I'm waiting, I'm waiting for somebody in this church to give me permission to evangelize, to teach, to start a Bible study at work, to start a Bible study in my neighborhood. Do it! What Paul is saying here is, the other apostles, they eventually recognize me, but my calling 
was directly from God. All right? So he's, he's established two things. I don't have a secondhand gospel. And I am not a secondhand apostle. It's all directly from Jesus. But now the question is, do the other apostles agree with his gospel and his apostleship? And his third point is this. He finally goes to Jerusalem 14 years later, or 13, 14 years later, and he lays his gospel out, and we see that his gospel and his apostleship are confirmed. He is not corrected. Okay? So, this is chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Now, why is it important that he mentions Barnabas and Titus? Barnabas is a Jew. He's been circumcised. Titus, a Gentile, not circumcised. Titus, we're going to Jerusalem. We're going to see what they make you do. How would you, be, how would you feel if you were Titus? Oh, we're going to Jerusalem to, the, to, to, to determine the question, do Gentiles need to be circumcised? Yeah, I'm really excited about that, Paul. Let's go. All right. I went up because of a revelation at, uh, uh, and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. All right? So I went up to Jerusalem with these guys, gathered the apostles, and I laid out my gospel. I wanted to make sure I was not running in vain. Now you go, wait a minute. Does that mean he thought he might have been wrong? Might he have been preaching the wrong gospel? No, 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 no. Paul is not saying, I, I was afraid that I was preaching the wrong gospel. Here's what he's saying. I'm afraid that while I was preaching the right gospel, that the big boys back in Jerusalem had compromised. And all of my correct preaching would have been in vain. It's kind of like a soldier on the front lines. Blood, sweat, and tears, but he's gaining ground. He's gaining ground. He's gaining ground. But back in Washington, the politicians have abandoned the war. All of it was in vain. So Paul is saying, I went to lay out my gospel to make sure I wasn't doing this in vain, to make sure they hadn't compromised. Okay? But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. I'm sure Paul went, and I'm sure Titus went. Okay. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. Um, so notice he, he says that anybody who would try to add works to the gospel, they're kind of like spies coming into a church. And though they may be friendly, they may seem like they know the Bible. If they're introducing works to the gospel, they are double agents for the enemy. Okay? To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And 
for those who seemed to be influential. Who's he talking about here? He's talking about Peter, John, and James, the, the brother of Jesus. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. He's kind of saying, I know they're the big guys, but I am confident that I have the true gospel. They didn't add anything to my message. In other words, we're on the same page. I can prove to you Titus wasn't circumcised. Titus, come here. He could prove it. Titus's non-circumcision proves that the gospel is by faith alone. How would you like to be Titus again? Right? Okay. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who works through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me uh, for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, now this is James, not the apostle, but the brother of Jesus who wrote the book of James. When James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John the Apostle, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. All right, bottom line, I was not given the gospel through man. It came directly through Jesus. I was not commissioned as an an apostle by those other guys. That came directly to Jesus. But when I went to the apostles 14 years later and laid out my gospel, they gave me the right hand of fellowship. Titus is still uncircumcised. We're all on the same page. That's his argument. Okay. Now, um, there are liberal theologians today who, in spite of Paul's argument here in Galatians, will still say that Paul's gospel is contradictory to James' gospel. James, the brother of Jesus, who, who in essence is... Uh, the leader of the Jerusalem church, okay? Um, In in fact, uh, when you read in Acts 15, there's the first church council. The guy in charge of the whole thing is not Pope Peter, not even Paul, but James, right? Now, these liberal scholars, they read the book of James, and they read Paul's letters, and they say they disagree, Right? They, they will say that there's a contradiction in the Bible between James and Paul. Paul says you're not saved by works. You're not justified by works. James says you are justified by works. Now, how do we reconcile James chapter 2, which seems to be teaching justification by works? How do we, how do we reconcile that with Paul who teaches you're not justified by works, and Paul's saying we're all on the same page. 
Right? In fact, let me spell it out for us. In Romans 3.28, Paul says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Could there be a clearer statement of justification by faith alone, not by works? Okay? But then when you look at James, James 2.24, James says, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, I tell the Moody Bible students that if I were the president of a Bible college, before you graduate, you would have to, on a test, reconcile those two verses. You can get A's in all your classes, in gym class, and Mrs. Smith's uh, human development class, and uh, hermeneutics, and Hebrew. If you can't reconcile those two verses, you are not fit for ministry. How do you reconcile Romans 3.28 and James 2.24? Now, by the way, what does the word justified mean? Justified means declared by God to be be right. right? Paul says you're justified by faith apart from works. James says you see a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, when there is ever an apparent contradiction in Scripture, and by the way, this is not some minor little thing. All of salvation hangs in the balance. How do, you, how do you reconcile these two? Well, when there's an apparent contradiction, you have to say it has to be apparent. All scriptures God breathed. The Holy Spirit inspired it all. So one question is this. Might the same word be used with a different definition, a slightly different nuance of a definition in a different context? So you do a word study. A word study is uh, you click on, on a word in your, uh, your ESORD Bible program. You click on the number and you look up all the occurrences of it and you say, does it always mean exactly the same thing or might it have a slightly different meaning? Like when Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. There, the word dead, it's the same word, but it can't mean the same thing. It has to mean let the spiritually dead bury their own physically dead. Okay? So, does, does justified always mean the same thing? Well, when Paul uses it, it virtually always means declared right before God. But when you do your word study, you find out that here in Matthew, Jesus is using it. It doesn't mean to be declared right before God. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. What does that mean? I know you're all criticizing me. First of all, you criticize John because he was real ascetic. He, didn't, he, he had a real strict diet and he wore the rough clothes. And you made fun of him for being crazy. Now I come and I'm not as ascetic. I actually go to the, fe- the, the feasts and I eat with people. And what do you call me? You call me a drunkard. But wisdom is justified by her deeds. What does that mean? Wisdom is shown by her deeds. Okay? So, wisdom, the NIV says, wisdom is proved right by her actions. The observing world can watch somebody's behavior and see whether they're wise or not. Okay? So, here we see that when Paul uses the word justified, it means declared right by God. But when Jesus uses the word, 
At least in this context, it means demonstrated to be right. So, huge difference there. It can mean to be declared by God, or it can mean to demonstrate before man. Which one does it mean in James? Well, the context tells us. So here's the question. Does the context of James chapter 2, is it talking about God declaring a man to be perfect or right? Or is it the context of a person's actions demonstrating that they are right? So we'll just simply read it. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. So here's a hypothetical person saying, you have faith, I have works, um, We have two different methods. Now look what he says. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show, I will demonstrate to humans, I will show you my faith by my works. So are we talking about being declared right before God or demonstrating to others that your faith is real? Clearly, verse 18 is about demonstration. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, is this, is this him being declared right? Or is it him demonstrating that his earlier declaration, God declared him right, is this not demonstrating to the watching world. Now, some people say, well, nobody was there to see it. Isaac was there. He had a real good view. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Now, here's the conclusion. You see that a person is justified, declared by God, or demonstrated to the world. You see that a person is demonstrating to the watching world. A person is justified by works, not by faith alone. Do you buy it? Okay, good. All right. You can can remain in the family. Okay, good. What's the argument? I'm not a second-rate apostle or with a second-hand gospel. I got it directly from Jesus, and I didn't get my—I didn't get tagged by the other apostles before I could go preach. I've been for 14 years. I was out preaching, but when I went up to Jerusalem, I laid it all out. Did they correct me? No. They gave me the right hand of fellowship. The gospel is not believe in Jesus plus earn your way. The gospel is, you're a sinner. God requires perfection. You have no chance of getting into heaven if anything is up to you. Jesus paid it all. He lived a perfect life in your place, and he died on the cross in your place. You 
trust in him. You place your saving faith in him. But guess what? When you have genuine saving faith, you will demonstrate that to the watching world by a changed life. That changed life doesn't justify you. It doesn't save you. It demonstrates that he has saved you. Let's pray.